Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Gaming by Design. Our very last episode of Season 1. It is the end. Yes. Um, so, you can still get in touch though uh, by emailing us at gamingbydesign at gmail.com or checking out the blog at gamingbydesign.blogspot.com because you never know, we might, we might be back for Season 2. Uh, maybe. That's, yeah. uh, seems unlikely, but you never know. Uh, so yeah, this is a podcast where we look at the the, the the gaming mechanics, how they are made, what what it is that makes a good game great, I guess. But you should know that by now. Um, most importantly, I should say that these opinions are our own, and not those of our employees, either past, present, or future. Finally, I should probably say that my name's Colin and you are Richard. Good morning, everybody. How weird is it that the last intro I ever do is the one that is the most cack-handed? Yep, we fucked that up totally. Don't worry, I'll fix that in the edit. So, uh, how about you introduce the podcast then, Richard? Okay, so for our last possibly ever episode, we're going to be looking at a kind of silly topic, which is, what are our personal pet hates in games? What are the golden rules of game development? What features and ideas, when you see them in the game, you just think, those should never, ever happen. So it's going to get a little bit ranty, possibly a little bit pointless, but it should be some fun. But we'll also try to uh, make counterpoints to our arguments ourselves, and I'm, I'm sure that you'll jump in and, and, and be uh, an, a mediating factor. Intelligent discussion is always a goal of these podcasts. It's not necessarily always achieved. So I'll start. Number one, Richard. A thing that I hate quite a lot. Okay, it's exciting. It seems to be happening more and more these days, um, and it, it's something that instantly turns me off pretty much always, is... Do not shoehorn RPG elements into a game that does not need them. Wow. Do you have any initial thoughts on this? Um, no, I have no initial thoughts. Uh, explain yourself, Colin. So the amount of games that I've played in which you are... Say it's a, it's a first-person shooter, and then about 5% five, 5 into the game, and then all of a sudden you're met with this weapon upgrading system, health upgrading system, all okay. these things that you have to go out and collect, or, or money that you have to collect. A system that is only there to to satisfy itself. The system doesn't have any effects on, on anything else, really. I mean, obviously, if you upgrade a gun, you become more powerful. But these RPG elements didn't used to be in games of my childhood, so why are they there now? Mm, this I'm not sure about this point, because um, obviously I knew you were going to do it, because I've got this piece of paper in front of me. Um, to what extent is it just this you being an old, grouchy gamer bemoaning the state of modern games and how they aren't as pure as Goldeneye. I don't, I don't think it's grouchy. I just think that these systems, I think, are added in because they're quite easy things to add in. It's just a, a, an exposure to a database that just tweaks some numbers in the, in the background sure. of how strong you are or how powerful your weapon is. And I think the problem is, is that it can be a turn-off for many gamers, especially inexperienced gamers who are suddenly... Uh, affronted with this weird database with some pretty graphics over it. Do you not think that the complexity for the easy implementability of it um, can be uh, detrimental to the game? Um, certainly, um, I agree that um, the adding of kind of RPG-esque elements, you know, which used to um, be the mostly the purview of you know kind of more obscure games like Deus Ex, is now is now very common. Yeah, most. Games, your average third or first person will have some form of armor, health, weapon upgrading, stat upgrading, and I see that. I mean, I see the point. I mean, obviously they're there just you know try and add depth, add a bit more thought to their game. And I certainly agree that, like a lot of things, are quite standard modern gaming. You know, like cover systems, like regenerating health, they can kind of be applied thoughtlessly without thinking whether or not it really applies to the game. 
um, which it's in. Yeah, do you know, I, I just think that the game would be more succinct and, and more solid if, if these features weren't just f- thrown in. As it, it almost feels like a, a last-minute decision, but I know it won't have been. Like, I mean, I've, there's plenty of examples I've played recently. Dead Space 2, um, I, it was in Enslaved. And the, the thing is that you just kind of... I don't know, it, it doesn't really feel like you're becoming more powerful. It, it sort of feels more like it's a thing that you've got to do as part of the game. and it, it, it kind of feels to me like sometimes you're struggling against the game or it's giving you decisions that maybe you don't really can't be bothered making the decision of whether you should upgrade your health, armor, or the uh, clip size of a gun. Yeah, I think it is one of those things where you need to... Um, yeah, you need to think if your game genuinely needs this... Um, so this is all very much off the top of the head, so I don't know how um, true this would be. But yeah, there's certainly like a, a difference between uh, Enslaved and, say, I don't know, Bioshock. Um, I think that in Bioshock, the RPG system it has is very important because it's at the core of it. And what an RPG system does is it allows a player to craft and individualize their character based on the things the way that their preferred playstyle. So obviously you pump your points in whatever game it is into stealth because you're a stealth character, you pump your points into grenade launchers because you're like using grenade launchers. Certainly when I played Enslaved, there was a feeling that it was useless because you don't really get this sense that there are lots of these tools and you don't have to use some of them and you're crafting a playstyle like you have to jump, you have to fight people, you have to shoot, you have to use all of these things. Um so the up, so the collecting the little blue orbs and upgrading monkey's staff power almost feels like the game should just be doing for you because you have to use all of these different skill trees. Um, well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, if you use your staff or a certain uh, skill a lot, why don't you just naturally get better at that like you do in real life? No, I, I agree. I mean, thinking more about this, I'm kind of more starting to understand the point you're making because... Um, in playing Enslaved, you naturally, over the course of it, collect little blue orbs. Um, there's some, there may be some justification for saying that the upgrading is to do with exploration, because sometimes the blue orbs are hidden. But generally speaking, you get blue orbs just by playing it. And things like your health getting better, your health bar gets increased because you have to choose the purpose to upgrade it. That's just something that happens naturally, of course, in playing a Zelda game. You play it naturally, you eventually get the big health you know, heart container in each dungeon, which makes you get better. In Enslaved, it's the exact same principle, but you've, it's demanding the player manually remember to open a menu and do it themselves. Yeah, and in a game that I played not too long ago, the the Slide trilogy, that I played the HD version. Oh, yes. There are some things, like what we're talking, particularly talking buying weapons here, but there were some weapons that I had to buy to uh, carry on the game, to, to progress the story, to, to yes, unlock yeah. a mission. Well, why didn't they just give it to me? Oh, yeah, well, this is... um. I mean, this is a topic we can go on all day, which is that often games will use um, money and they need to have a specific amount of money as a way to gate their game. And it's almost always a very lazy system. But money is essentially the same as a, a, a levelling up system. It's just a different currency. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and suddenly you play um, all games like that. And um, this is a kind of strangely obscure example. It's all leaps into my head. Is um, Boiling Point Road to Hell, the um, the famed crazy first-person jungle RPG. And that entirely, its structure was lazily and almost entirely based on um, money-based gated kind of checkpoints where you're going through the storyline and you are unable to progress with the storyline because a man says, hey, gringo, I need 500 pesos, otherwise I wouldn't let you through this gate. And 
you basically need to wander around the map doing subquests to do it. And that's the kind of lazy way they've gated it. So, yeah, an RPG system in that way can end up being just in a way to artificially extend the game. Yeah, and that's I guess that's why I'm I'm turned off by them, is that I can see through it and kind of see the, the laziness of it. I mean, there are times when it is done well, like, for example, in RPG games... Yes, actual RPGs tend to have RPG systems that are quite well developed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, a quite powerful point we're making. But I can think of an example. Life. I can think of an example as well that um, I did enjoy, even though uh, it goes against everything I've said thus far. Was in in Resident Evil Four, and I enjoyed yeah, it just yeah, because I know, right. just because it is so hilarious and it makes no sense. But I, I sort of let it slide because they sort of haven't really. They've they've at least attempted to make it. Uh, humorous, either you, intentionally or unintentionally. Do you like the Resident Evil 4 upgrading system simply because of the Cockney man that sells you the guns? Pretty much, yeah. Because uh, he says, I have some nice things for sale, stranger. And the fact that you can buy an attaché case that you never actually carry around. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, and this is a thing I mean, we should just leave out there for the viewers to remember us as like a little philosophical quandary, you know, after the series is over and you're wondering what to do with our life. In Resident Evil 5, if Chris, Red- Chris Redfield buys armour, why does his armor take up space in his armor? Carry on, Colin. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't really have too much more to say about it because I don't want to labor too much over one point. But um, I think if you're going to put an RPG system in a game, which we've said a lot in the past, it should be a, a, a rounded fe- feature in itself and worthwhile. And it should, I guess, follow some kind of in-game logic. Yeah, I think if I, I guess, yeah, to make a concluding kind of point to this, yeah, I, I see what you're getting at. I, I think that if a designer is choosing to put an RPG system in their game, they've got to look at it as, uh, is it really enhancing player choice? Because that's in the end what an RPG system is about. Are you allowing the user to upgrade useful parts of their being that lets them develop in some way that lets them meaningfully differentiate themselves from another player? Like, it makes sense to have um, an RPG system in Deus Ex, but if modern if modern warfare suddenly add an RPG system for modern warfare three, would that really have any meaning in a game where you are always forced to fight anyway? Therefore, upgrading parts of your fighting might as well be you know automatic. Good. Okay. Well, uh, we'll have to move on now to your first point, Richard. All right. So my first um, little thing that annoys me about games is this is quite an obscure one, but this is. Games should never include small scuttling enemies that walk across the floor or hover above your head and are really hard to hit and are annoying. I like this because um, when we discussed this, we talked about whether we we could have really generic points or things that are really specific to just uh, us as individuals, and you certainly gone for the latter here. So please explain. Uh, this is the thing that's actually I think annoyed me since the moment I started playing games as a like, as a child. I think there may have been examples of this in the very first games I played. Games, basically, a video game should not be annoying. Um, and when when a game includes enemies, who the way that they move, the way the size of them means that with they are incredibly hard to aim at and attack with the tools that the developer has given you. All they do is frustrate you. Um, so yeah, to, to throw out an example would be um, Singularity. Uh, I don't know why Singularity comes up so much again by design. It's not like it's a particularly important game, but there you go. Um, it's because no one else played it and we like to talk about it. That's probably it, yeah. Um, so Singularity, I think it's a decent enough game. I quite enjoy it. But it adds, at one point, um, scuttling small alien little spider things, which are very hard to aim at because they're very low to the floor and they move incredibly quickly towards you. 
Um, so you're, and of course, they come at you in such huge amounts, but when they get near you, they explode and almost can kill you in one hit. Um, now I look at that and you kind of analyze that as a concept for a creature. What is that adding to the game? It is a creature that it's difficult to aim at. If it gets near you, it blows you up. There's nothing interesting about the AI behavior because all they do is run straight towards you. So yeah, it's something that's annoyingly hard to aim at, yet can deal massive damage to you and isn't interesting in any way to the game's fiction and there's no interesting kind of play style that develops. Um, so yeah. It's sort of the evolution of 20 years of, of shooters is that eventually someone's gone, oh, what would happen if you made them really small and really difficult to hit? Yeah, and I don't think... Like, what does being small and really difficult to hit add to a bad guy in a game? And the annoying things about small enemies that are difficult to hit is that they very rarely come on their own. They normally come in groups of Oh, yeah, I think dozens. this... I mean, it, this, this, this um, yeah, little kind of golden rule here, if I was to extend the sentence, I would say small enemies to scuttle across the floor and hover near your head and also arrive in god-almighty biblical hordes. Because they always do. Um, it's like... I think developers must write down like a list of the different types of baddies you'll get. So you'll get the baddie, you know, the, the weak, fragile one that's fast. You'll get the big, strong one that's slow. And then, oh, what's the third kind of enemy? Oh, yes, it's the really, really tiny one that comes at you in hordes and blows up near your head. If they were removed from all games, games would be improved. Okay, what about just one small section of a game with just the one uh, small enemy? Is that fine, or are you saying no? There's a no. There's, there's blank, if it's n- it's never adding. Okay, so let's go with some more examples. Dead Space. Um, playing Dead Space Two currently. Um, overall, I think it's a decent game. Beautiful production values. You know, a little bit weak on ideas, but decent fun to play. Um, features at least three or four kinds of the most unbelievably annoying tiny enemies. Um, this is already a game in which Isaac Clarke, a, a man who seems un- unpanicked by the situation he's in, moves at a very lethargic pace, aims very lethargically, has to fight enemies that zip incredibly slowly across the ground towards you, enemies who arrive in tiny, tiny hordes that you can't actually aim your gun at individually, who then climb over your body and initiate a nauseating quick-time event where they crawl up your skin for ten minutes. There's a great bit coming up that I don't think you got to yet, which is an enemy in Dead Space that when you kill it, it explodes into smaller aliens. Yeah, I mean, so like, let's let's look at that first. So we, I actually have met them. So there's the big fat baddies. So you blow up the big fat baddies. No, no, no. I'm not talking about them, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, okay. There's, a, there's another type, which is, it looks a bit like a scarecrow. Oh, good. Well, I'm not looking forward to that, but these ones at least. So you have a big fat enemy, you fight it, and it falls over. You walk over and you stamp on its chest to get ammo. Uh, then loads of scuttling creatures appear and they go over your body and they initiate a quick time event in which, and this is an important thing in Dead Space 2, you definitely have to receive damage. You start l- losing health the moment the quick time event starts. So they put a baddie in the game who essentially is there to just take away some of your health. They don't add anything to the experience. There's no interesting tactics in fighting them. They're not interesting to look at. They don't make interesting sounds. They are just small and annoying and they take away your health for the sake of it. I, I guess the point is that it's, it's got to be fair, isn't it? I mean, that isn't fair, and it's not fun, it is annoying, but you can have small creatures without being entirely annoying. Um, the only exception that comes off my head is probably Half-Life. Um, head crabs are quite an iconic kind of Half-Life enemy, and why do they work? Because even they're small, they're actually surprisingly big. The amount of damage they do to you is minute. They're quite funny, because they make a <laughs> noise when they jump through the air. Um... 
the, and they're very easily dispatched with one crowbar hit. Yeah, the other thing is they're a bit stupid as well. Their AI is, uh, I would say, purposefully stupid so that they can hang out in the room with you for a long time before you actually take any damage. Yeah, I mean, if we, yeah, if we look at this kind of the fairness aspect, which I think is quite an important part of making game enemies interesting, a head crab gets a little unfair first jump when they can suddenly appear out of it and slap into your face. Um, generally actually adds to the fear of the game and it's fine and when they do actually do it they, they take l- at most two health off you um, even like normal mode harder maybe a bit more so they're kind of like just stupid they're kind of like the little grunts you get in the original Halo they, they're kind of amusing but they go oh bless them they're trying to kill me they can't really do it Dead Space 2 will put enemies that are literally the size of your thumbnail and they will kill you stone fucking dead Um I would only. I don't want to go on all day, but I mean, we've got started getting to the um, the rolling balls in Metro 2033, which infinitely respawn out of a hole in the ground, roll menacingly towards you, and then blow up, instantly kill you. And if they don't, they, the explosion of particle effects lags the engine and makes the frame rate drop. This sounds like a, a great game. <laughs> so then con- let's not get into Metro 2033. <laughs> in conclusion, if you're going to have small things, which you shouldn't, because we now have a blanket ban. Yep. Make them fur. Make them fair, and make them inconsequential, or better, just don't put them in the game. Okay, now we have a, uh, a special guest. Uh, we were on uh, a podcast of theirs. Uh, it's a man called Chris, and Chris presents a monthly show for In Retrospect podcast called Digital Wonderlust that seeks to explore the different landscapes found in gaming and how they affect the gamer. You can find this show at www.inretrospectpodcast.com. And we were on a show called Fearscapes, in which we were talking about how to create fear f- through level design. I do like his podcast. It makes ours seem amateurish in comparison. Well, we're going to hear... Uh, we've, a- we've asked him to also get involved and uh, tell us his golden rule of gaming, which we're going to hear from now. And you can, I think you can sense the difference in our, in our styles. And a part of gaming that really annoys me is something in, that happens in boss battles. Now, I hate boss battles as a rule. The types of boss battles I really hate are the ones in which you are stuck in the same location. So the problems with that for me are basically too claustrophobic. It creates a sense of claustrophobia, which I suppose, if, if that's part of the game, is a survival horror, I suppose it makes sense. But for me, I always found that quite lazy and quite infuriating, staying in the same place having to chip away at the boss. And also as well, I mean, the frustration from playing it, there's a frustration that if you're unsuccessful in your first attempt, you spawn back exactly to the same place, at the same location. And if you're playing a very hard boss, you're stuck in the same place for a long period of time. Which for me, who is particularly interested in level design, in gaming, I find that really, really frustrating. So for improvements, which, you know, lots of games out there do this, I'd like to, I like boss battles where you're in the, on the move, you're physically moving through a level, a level that is constantly changing, but instead of having an objective, in term, but instead of having a fixed destination where you have to be that, your objective is merely to defeat the boss while in movement, while in motion. That for me makes for something that's a lot more exciting, dynamic, it's less frustrating as well because even though you are still taking on a boss and there may be more challenges and pitfalls because the landscape essentially is unpredictable, it means that it's not boring, it's not monotonous, and it's not frustrating. So that for me is my real sort of golden rule that I'd like to be kind of maintained in gaming as it were. 
because I believe that there's, there's more skill in this because not only are you concentrating on moving through a level but you're also concentrating on attacking the boss but at the same time you're also concentrating on defending yourself from the boss or as often is the case you're defending yourself and attacking the boss's minions if they send out minions to kind of as kind of like um, chaff which you have to kind of wade through and that makes for me a more dynamic game playing event I feel as if I'm going somewhere and accomplishing something a lot more rather than being stuck in the same place having to chip away at this person because then it doesn't become fun for me it just becomes something I have to do not something I want to do something I feel I have to do which for me isn't what game playing is all about okay so that was Chris from the In Retrospect podcast Digital Wonderlust um, so Richard what did you what did you think of his point interesting that was um that was quite a specific uh, issue I guess it's I like that with my little small creatures uh, thing. Well, the thing is, I liked about it is that he he started his point with uh, how how he doesn't like boss battles, and I I am a man in total agreement with this. I think boss battles should be banned, but that is a different uh, topic. I mean, I guess the problem is, I mean, the the point is is interesting. Um, to to be on the move whilst having a, a boss battle, I mean, apart aside, implementation difficulties aside, um, there is a lot of area to explore there. Do you not think? Um, yeah, it's something that's. Um, I, I like boss fights. I think they're often done wrong, and they're, they're such an old idea. They can seem antiquated, and I do think that the um, fighting the big boss in a big room kind of thing is definitely. It feels very antiquated, very old-fashioned when you see it in a game. I think the the boss battles are more like puzzles than battles normally, and so uh, as an effect, need to be quite scripted and constrained. I mean, this this point could lead to a more fluid uh, battle, which which is you know in fitting with the rest of the game, I imagine. Oh yeah, I mean it's something you do see in um in, in games, not not a lot, but it, it happens quite a lot. I mean, I've I've always been interested in these games that make the boss into a whole level where it's about kind of a, yeah a fight which carries on across several stages where you know you're pursuing them and you fight them for a bit, then you keep going, when you fight them for a bit. Yeah, God of War does this very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, it's uh, like I'm a particularly good example. Um, there's that boss in Resident Evil Four, the one who's invulnerable and kind of attacks you through the ceiling, and the only way to kill him is with like these liquid nitrogen canisters, and it kind of turns the whole thing into a kind of a running encounter. Um, you running down corridors, fighting them a bit, trying to set things up for the big finale where you blow them up with the liquid nitrogen. Um, yeah, I think what can make these kind of big boss fights in a room things quite tedious is that it comes back to something we talked about a couple episodes ago about predictability of like you get the small room with the ammo in it and then the big empty room with loads of ammo in it and you think uh oh here's a boss fight and especially with these kind of really rich looking realistic narrative led experiences these days it seems even more out of place that you know in something so well crafted as uncharted that the you know, the Colombian terrorists or whatever would have a big empty room where their boss waits for you for ages. You know, it just... Exactly, and they are set up like arenas. If you think of Ocarina of Time, like, you would go into an arena and, like, a door would magically shut behind you. Yeah. But, I mean, he he mentioned claustrophobia, feelings of that, and and frustration. Are these not feelings that you would want to uh, evoke in a boss battle? Or do you think that that maybe these, these, these feelings should not be encouraged? I think it's very much a case-by-case basis. Um, I think 
suddenly in more horror-based games, the sense of you're trapped in a room with something, um, even though it's not traditionally considered to be a horror game, I always remember the uh, the Bongo Bongo boss fight in the Shadow Temple of Ocarina of Time, where you're trapped in like a pitch-black room with two demonic arms banging a drum, and you'll feel very claustrophobic, very close. You, you're very close to the boss, and you can't get away from him. And it adds to the really powerful effect of that surprisingly scary-for-a-kids game dungeon. Um, but yeah, you can get, in like kind of more action-based games, um, it can just feel daft. I can't think of a more intelligent word than that. I'm thinking um, a few years ago playing Quake 4, which was came out in the quite, you know, modern times, only a few years ago, but it had such old-school sensibilities, and some of those hadn't aged very well. But you'd go into a room, and the big baddie of the Shogoth... Well, the, the big baddie of the Strog, sorry, like the big robot demon thing, and he's just in a big empty room, and he's just waiting for you. There's no furniture in there. It's not a control room. He's the boss of this army, but he's waiting in a totally blank cube room, uh, and it's just silly. It's silly, and it does feel claustrophobic, and it feels disconnected from the kind of rich, modern, you know, gaming experience they've created. That all that war, the beautifully kind of scripted warfare that's been created, suddenly just comes to a standstill when you end up in a giant, empty, windowless square room. Yeah, I mean, uh, Chris is right. It is, it is lazy, and I think the boss battles are so ingrained in the rhetoric of games that um, it, it, it's becoming a bolder step. Uh, less bold step these days, but it certainly was a bolder step a few years ago to not have boss battles. Yeah, I think I remember like I think the original Halo was one of the most famous games to kind of noticeably do away with boss fights. Even like Half Life, which is quite a you know realistic experience uh, for a game about aliens, um, still has two quite big boss fights at the end. Um, and it does work in some games. I'm not fundamentally against the idea of bosses because I think some boss fights can be incredibly impressive experiences. Um, and no one, would, I think, would begrudge the opening of God of War 3 um, as, you know, as, as an experience. I mean, nobody would look at that and go, we're better if that Poseidon boss, 300 foot tall, hadn't been in that game. Um, so I don't think I could agree as a blanket statement, but I certainly think that this kind of arcadey, static boss fight in a big room with lots of health packs in the corners is starting to feel a little bit, yeah, out of date. So thanks for Chris sending that in. Um, yeah, and, and we look forward to hearing ourselves on uh, Fearscapes soon. Um, so I should go on with my next point now. Go for it. So uh, first I had Don't Shoehorn in RPG Elements. Now I've gone for, I would say, I don't know if it's a personal choice. Anyway, we'll see. Don't have jumping sections in first-person shooters. Controversial. I hate the jumping section in first-person shooters. And I don't know, I, I think it happens less and less these days, but... The the dread I see of when I'm walking along with my gun in front of me and all of a sudden I come into this cavernous warehouse of some sort and I see the that I'm expected to do these uh, pixel-perfect jumps when I don't even have any feet to look upon. The lack of feet is certainly... Um, it does feel like it's a genre, or it's a camera perspective, that's not suited for this task. Certainly, the, the whole first-person shooter thing is, is, is about forward-looking. You're always looking forward. You very rarely even turn backwards. So to all of a sudden be given a task in which you have to focus not only downwards and forwards, but upon uh, some invisible feet, it's, it's... I don't get it. It's too difficult. It's, you die a lot. It's annoying. And you just kind of think, well, if only I could just walk through this warehouse instead of having to jump through this warehouse. Um, I think, in principle, I agree with you because it's almost like the navigation version of the little creature thing I was talking about earlier. It's something where a genre, or a camera perspective anyway, is not suited for this task, but they're making you just do this task anyway. And yeah, someone with no feet attempting to jump onto a small platform is 
tricky. I mean, it's, it's used as a device to break up the shooting sections, but there are better ways to do it. I mean, I, I think of Resistance 1, I had to jump on between pipes and I fell down a lot and I, I turned around to my brother who was watching me at the time and he was like why do you keep dying and I said because the gameplay mechanic is stupid Resistance 2 has the same things but now they've made it even more annoying because there's a time limit with water coming up and if the water touches you you die instantly Half-Life has it with this really absurd long jump system which I still don't really get why it was in the game and then well later on in the game the whole game becomes a jumping section um, do, I mean, can you think of good examples of of this being done? I'm I'm sure you'll probably go on to defend Half Life now. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, jumping puzzles in first jumping jumping in first person shooters isn't generally the strongest suit for genre. And as you said, the reason it's in there, it's the, it's a way to break a game up with puzzles without actually putting in the effort to come up with a puzzle. Um, in which for yeah, the navigation is itself a puzzle. Um, can jumping puzzles be fun? I would argue that the original Half-Life, and in fact some games which are all about um, kind of, they're about these realistic kind of immersive experiences. And the fact in Half-Life, the jumping puzzles were about trying to traverse kind of the crumbling remains of like some institution. So it was about, you know, trying to clamber over crates and it kind of it kind of fitted it, whereas I would certainly agree something like Turok Dinosaur Hunter, which is kind of pops into my head, where literally um, without context, there are just floating rocks, and you have to jump on those floating rocks. Are you talking the N64 version? I am. Yes. You just reminded me of that. That had a horror, horrid bunch of jumping platforms, and most of the platforms were obscured with fog. Yes, the fog in Turok was a sad um, artifact of its of uh, early N64 um, game development. I was watching this video with um, Jonathan Blow, who created Braid, and he was saying that it was very important that his character was rectangular shaped. Okay. Because the, with a game based so much on jumping, you need the, the shape of your the shape of your character should be bottom heavy rather than top heavy. Okay. But this is a problem that first person shooters have: is that the game feels very top heavy. Um, you, uh, well, you don't have any feet, so without the the visual cues. I don't see why whoever thought this that this was a good idea. I mean, I know it can work, uh, but I think it can only ever work with auto jumping. Yeah, auto jumping is interesting because you don't get it very often in first person games. Um, I struggle to think of an example of a first person game that's automatic jumping in it. Um, Die Hard Vendetta is the only one that props into my head. Yeah, but Mirror's Edge is is a sort of auto jumping. It, it's kind of scripted. Well, Mirror's, Mirror's Edge is very much not automatic jumping. I mean, the whole game is about jumping. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's not it's not really about precision, is it? It is you you execute a jump at the right time. It's time jumping, I guess. But um, you don't need to worry about your landing. It does, it, the distance and stuff is scripted. Well, I think I think that it can. Um, what Mirror's Edge does is it's in certain ways. I mean, in certain ways it's incredibly unforgiving, but in others it does the things where you, know, where you can pull yourself onto ledges that you just miss and things like that, which do help. Um, but do you consider Mirror's Edge, I mean, in its entirety, to be a counterpoint? To your point, I mean, whatever we say about Mirror's Edge, it has got a lot of failings. It is, I would say, a fairly successful first-person jumping game. I think it's, as I say, it's it's a little different because you're not. I mean, what they've done there is okay. It is a counterpoint. They've they've sort of they've taken the the horrid idea of jumping in first-person shooters, although I did say shooters in first-person games, and then they they've polished it into a, a format that actually works. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't think Mirror's Edge is entirely successful. 
um, it it can still suffer from the fact that if you jumping is based on like it's literally um, it's kind of it's binary on off you you fail and you die you succeed you carry on so in that sense jumping puzzles can still Matthew Mirror's Edge does it particularly well it can still have an element of frustration because it's just about you running you jump you miss the platform you start again uh, but that's less about first person that's just the platform genre in general I suppose yeah um, I don't really have a conclusion for this except for uh, don't do it unless don't you, do it when you play test it just, just say well does this feel good and when you're designing it, think maybe jumping isn't the best thing in this game. I'm I'm somewhat neutral on your point, but I will agree that developers pr- should think about what mechanics play to the strength of their genre. And certainly, if you're a traditional FPS where you're a player man with no feet, who, well, has no real sense of body awareness, having to fling yourself through a void onto a small crate hanging in air is probably not the greatest thing your game could be doing. Good. Well, okay then, Richard, uh, let's hear your second point then. Oh, my second point is, um, I think this is one that most people will agree with. I think I've got, I've got a safe bet here. Um, and that is, a video game should not include bits where you have to protect NPCs. Interesting. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I see where this is going. Uh, explain. Well, they shouldn't do it because it's shit. Um, so, gaming has, a, has quite a rich, dark history of many developers, almost all of them, and in fact, I do already have in my mind have counterpoints to my own point, but we'll get into that later. There is kind of a long history of developers who would keep, would keep trying to you know, bring up the uh, protecting NPCs thing, and I'll think, oh, we're going to nail it this time, but no, they never nail it. It's a ca- gaming is a catalogue of frustration of bits where NPCs you've had to protect have died, and you've had to start again. Um, I think I only need to say Goldeneye for a whole generation of gamers to kind of collectively sigh as they think of Natalia with her big sausage arms and her big sausage figs standing there going, oh, James, as she blunders into the fire of your AK-47 in the middle of a Russian bunker. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I think the problem with NPC protection missions is that if you fail, it never really feels like your fault. Yeah. It always feels like a, a cheap loss. I mean... It's especially annoying when the person that you're protecting is perfectly capable of looking after themselves. I mean, the amount of times oh, yeah. where you're protecting someone because they're doing something on a computer, and it's like, how about you just use one hand on the computer, the other hand on a gun, and you, you know, you sort this out. Yeah, I think. Um, speak to the first point you made. I think, even though what I'm talking about here is NPC protection missions are annoying, they do them. I guess the more intelligent golden rule underneath this is that in a video game, player death should never feel like it was out of the player's hands. I think mean, one of the most fundamental things that make, can ruin a game is when a player doesn't understand why they failed. If you are in a gunfight against a giant zombie killing machine and he kills you, that's fine, I fucked up, I died. If you were having a fight against a giant zombie killing machine and in the middle of that, and you didn't quite well, you knocked him down to a bit of health, it fades to black and goes, um, Jonathan in the next room has died, start again. I mean, what what emotion do you expect to elicit from the player other than frustration and confusion and anger? It would be pretty neat if the the game sort of um, branched off. Because I, I was just thinking as you were talking then, that in films, it's quite common that an important asset to the antagonist does die. And then they figure out a way to solve their problems anyway. What about in games if that you've got to protect this person, but if they die, it just makes your mission slightly harder? Well, that's interesting, um, because I have seen that um, 
Yeah, I think the best example of that would probably be Far Cry 2, which is an interesting, um, flawed, but very compelling game. It tried so many new ideas. None of them particularly worked, but I admired it for the sheer ferocity in which it tried to fight the foundations of gaming. And in that, you have all sorts of NPCs who can help you. You've got these henchmen characters who kind of turn up after you've been given your main mission brief. They kind of call you aside to a kind of quiet alleyway and they go, hey, so you've been given that mission to do that. I, I'm telling you, you do it this different way and I'll come with you and I'll help you and we'll get a bit of extra money. And they come with you and, in, and they can just kind of die in the middle of it and they just get shot up and they're lying there and you then you go to do like a little moral decision where you can try and use your health kits to bring them back to life and if they die they're deleted from because these are named characters with dialogue and a place in the plot they just die and they're just gone and yeah you got an interesting idea where, I mean a new henchman keep turning up but I did like that the game would just let you get them killed and the game would just carry on um, they're just not in the game or they're not taking their little seat in the bar anymore you got them shot uh, yeah it's a good bit of risk reward it is it's really good because um, you get that ho- at the moment in, in fact the first time it happens it's one of the well, a very memorable gaming experience where your, MP- your NPC henchmen, they fall to the ground, they're dying like in the middle of a road, in the middle of a gunfight, and you kind of stand over them holding like a health syringe. And you can use up your own health syringe because you need them, smack them into their chest to try and bring them back to life. But every time you use a health syringe, it kind of, they're not getting back to life. You think, oh, should I just leave them here? But if I bring them with me, I'll get you know, rewards for Quinty's mission. They might help me further down the line. Uh, it's really, really interesting. We've uh, we've deviated onto uh, a good design methodology too early. We should talk about how much this feature sucks some more. Okay, yeah. So um, it does suck major balls. So um, Goldeneye, I don't think we need to say anything more about. I mean, there's Natalia. You protect Natalia. She gets shot too much. Mission failed. Um, Princess Ruto in the otherwise amazing Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time, which is a game which I I'm always hesitant to criticise because it's like my favourite video game in the world. Um, but that you just have to protect this uh, quite so this makes this adds a kind of another layer of irritation where you have to protect them who's quite annoying uh, so that's a master stroke of design there let's have the player be forced to protect someone they really really hate uh, and yeah you can't I mean admittedly Nintendo had the foresight to make you not her not killable and you can't fail but she keeps falling down holes and resetting to her starting position they have to go back pick up you're the fucking carry the bitch and she complains as you're carrying her you say that she can't be killed but I think she's affected by essentially one hit kills which is where if she gets touched by an enemy she respawns back into the starting room yeah which is only slightly less annoying than you having to reload but we're talking infinitesimally slightly here because yeah the little weird it's like electrical tentacles that block some of the pathways she actually touches them and she makes a weird little ah midi noise uh, resets to a starting position Where's the fun? Let's locate it with a microscope, Colin. You should talk about Kane and Lynch because this is my personal favourite. Kane and Lynch can literally fuck off. Um, it's a really interesting game because I like parts of it. I like its kind of gritty crime persona. It feels very, you know, it's kind of ambiguous heroes who aren't very good or bad. They're just kind of people dealing with a bad situation. And it was going quite well as a kind of a serious crime game. Yeah, and then you get to the Cuba sections. Um, in which you recruit a gang of people, you go into incredibly difficult gunfights against hundreds and hundreds of Cuban soldiers, and if any of your gang die, you instantly fail the game. So the conclusion here is that the game should be fair. The, yes, again, I think like so many points we've, cu- we've done over the course of uh, this series, um, is it always in the end comes around to fairness. The player can't... Unless your genuine goal is to make the player a babysitter, in which case you probably stop being a game designer. Um, 
you can't make the player feel like they need to look after these people. They, it'd be totally unfair if someone who they can't control their intelligence, they can't tell them where to stand, where to sit, where to hide. If they die and you lose, you know, where, where, in what way was the player able to avoid that situation? In what way is the, this fair or fun for the player? Yeah. You, sh- you should never be punished for things out of your control. Yeah, and I think that's the crux of it. I think that's the crux of probably so much of um, game design is player control, player agency. That's good. We finished the whole season on a very good point there. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, let's say we have. <laughs> so that is unfortunately it. That is season one wrapped. Uh, I just need to edit it, make it sound good, and then upload it onto that internet. Yep, I can't wait for it to be on that internet. So, um, yeah, did you, did you have a personal highlight of the season? Um, my personal highlight is probably the episode about fear, because I think it was our best episode, but also the episode where I dicked up the sound quality, so you can't hear many of the intelligent points we are making. Exactly, that is unfortunate. Um, yeah, I quite enjoyed the episode in which, was it in fear, where you did um, a, a record number of imp- impressions? <laughs> Oh, yeah, with all the singularity impressions and all the other things. I think that was the fear in games. Oh, no, but was that making believable characters? I can't remember. There was all so much good stuff in there, we can't possibly sift through it now. Yeah, so you can still email. I mean, we're not going to die. So you can email us on gamingbeardesign at gmail.com. You can check out the blog, gamingbeardesign.blogspot.com. And there will be no next topic unless you come back for season two. Oh, uh, yeah, I think I'd just like to uh, reinforce Colin's point there. We are never going to die. Um, so please get in touch whenever you want um, and let's pray for a season two thank you all for listening until next time goodbye goodbye